There we go. Hey, we will get something to work today. All right. Well, first of all, my name is Nate. If you're a visitor with us, welcome. This is a little bit of a strange morning going on right now, but uh, we will worship regardless of what's going on, and, and uh, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. Um, and I, I'll tell you what, I've been hesitant to do a countdown, because last time I did a countdown, we got a flood, but I'm going to be bold right now and remind all of us here, especially if you've been here for a while, we have two setups and takedowns left after today. Two. That is awesome. And so praise God for that. Also with that, we're at crunch time. Okay, so essentially three weeks from today, we're going to be in the building. And if you saw this sheet, you probably see on the bottom of it, hopefully you've looked at it, it says we are moving, gives you where the soft launch is going to be on the 6th. The public launch is May 13th, which is also Mother's Day, and so we're going to have some publications to give you guys so you can invite family, friends, people that you know uh, in there also, and we'll let you know by next week we're going to have an open house beforehand so we can invite hopefully a lot of the churches that have helped us out beforehand. But the list of things we need, to help, we need help with before we move, uh, these are, this is like the last of the essentials that we have to get done before we get in there. And uh, you guys can help me out tremendously by doing one thing. Don't wait for me to come and ask you to help, okay? If you can come to me and let me know, look, I can work this day, this day, this day, or this day, or this evening, that will help me out tremendously because I don't know everybody's schedule, And if you can come let me know when you're available, I guarantee there's something, no matter how skilled you are, there's something on this list that you can help out with. Uh, And there's a a key box, even if I can't be there, I can describe what needs to be done, and you can get into the building. And if we all work together, and it's going to take all of us to work together to be ready within three weeks, it's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait. Okay, so please let me know uh, today or through a text, uh, through a message when you're available, and I will get you a job, and we'll, we'll get this done together. All right, with that, Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans, Luke, Luke chapter 5. We have been walking through the book of Luke together, and if you haven't been here, Luke is a guy who uh, was a Gentile, means he was not a Jew. He was a historian, a physician, so he's very detailed in his writing, tells details that no other gospel writer offers. He is also, he was a missionary with the Apostle Paul, and so he also wrote the book of Acts. So Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same guy. The book of Acts, he was an eyewitness to a lot of the things that happened in the book of Acts. Now, in Luke, while he wasn't an eyewitness, he interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses, and because of that, he was very detailed, and his whole purpose in writing this gospel was that so you would have more trust in Jesus, that you, uh, that, that, that you would believe what you've been taught. And so two weeks ago, in chapter 5, we looked at the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And if, if you're not sure where we're at right now, it's page 954 is where I'm going to be in one of these Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you've got an old Bible and you need a new one, please take this home. This is our gift to you, but we're on page 954. Please turn there, or you can click on your phone. 
Find Luke chapter 5. I'm going to be starting in verse 27 here in just a minute, but let me remind you of the context. So two weeks ago on Easter, we, we walked through the passage right before this. It was the story of the, Jesus healing this paralytic. And if you remember, the purpose of Luke sharing that story was not just to show how cool Jesus was that he could heal somebody. The purpose of it was that Jesus was making a very bold claim that he could forgive sins. In fact, in that moment, what he was doing is he was equating himself with God. And the response from the crowd around was this in verse 26. Amazement seized them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. In other words, we have never seen anything like this. They were amazed because Jesus had claimed that he could forgive sins, and only God can do that. They were amazed by this, which brings us to our text today. So Jesus walks away from that scene, and what does he do? He goes and he tries to find the biggest sinner that he could find, okay? He goes, and at least by the, the, the society's view, he goes and he finds the most unlikely of person and asks them to come and follow him as his disciple. He goes and he finds a tax collector named Levi, now, most of you probably know Levi as Matthew, okay? Levi is his Jewish name, Matthew, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. This is the same guy. Matthew is his, his Greek name. And so he finds Matthew, he finds Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he goes to them. And what we're going to see today is just a great picture of what true conversion looks like. And we're also going to see what is at the heart of Jesus' ministry, what, his mission, what's the heart of his mission was to call sinners to repentance. And there's three primary characters that I want us to notice in this story. There's Levi, of course. There's also this group of Pharisees and scribes. And then there's Jesus. And I want you to pay particular attention to their responses. There's three responses. I want you to notice how Levi responds to the call of Jesus. I want you to notice the response of the Pharisees and the scribes to Jesus hanging out with Levi. And then thirdly, I want you to notice Jesus' response to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay, so notice, though, if you're taking notes, that's a great way to outline this whole text by just taking a look at their responses. And so let's read this passage starting in verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Let's pray one more time. Father, right now, as we look at this passage, I 
plead with you that we would see your glory and we would be transformed by it from the inside out, that our hearts would love you more, that we would love you in our minds, with all of our heart, with all of our strength, that we would grow in love towards you and we would grow in love towards our neighbors. For this is what you've commanded us to do. I pray that your spirit would increase the capacity of our hearts to love you and to have compassion for others. For your glory, Lord. Use your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been in church for any amount of time at all, you've probably heard the tax collectors are not good people according to the Bible. In the Bible, they were scum. Nobody liked tax collectors. The Pharisees grouped them along with sinners and, and prostitutes. Even today, most people don't like tax collectors. I mean, nobody likes to have their hard-earned money taken away by the government. But back in biblical times, tax collectors were hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes for them, and they were local people. And so Levi would have been a a Jew here in in Palestine, and he would have been hated by all of his his relatives, his, his neighbors, because essentially this is what happens. Rome would give them the power to collect taxes. And they were told that, look, you're allowed to collect more taxes than what we need. You don't have to turn in all of the money you collect. You can keep some of it for yourself to be able to live on. So that was the the system that was set up back then for these tax collectors. And so you can imagine, because Rome didn't regulate how much they were allowed to keep back for themselves, there was all sorts of corruption going on. These tax collectors basically were looked upon by their, by their neighbors and even their family as, like, you're somebody that you've sold your soul to the devil. Essentially, you've, you've given up your, your social acceptance so that you can have some money, so that you can live a comfortable life, but nobody's going to like you anymore. So that's what a tax collector was back then. And so Levi, this Jew is sitting at the tax collector, socially unacceptable to all the other Jews around him. He's got a small group of other tax collectors that he probably hung around with. Those are his friends. And Levi sees Jesus. And I can imagine he sees this famous rabbi walking towards him, and he's probably thinking, oh, here we go again. Another Jewish guy here to ridicule me. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? And I also I want to point out that Jesus... I think, it's, I think it's significant that, that Luke points out, and he, you know, Luke loves details, and he points out that Levi was sitting down, which implies that Jesus had to walk up to him. Jesus had to pursue him. And this is not the main point of the story, but I think it's a good reminder that Jesus is going to the sinners. He's not waiting for the sinners to come to him. And that is so true for us today also. As a church, we need to be a church that goes to sinners and not wait for them to come to us. And so Jesus goes to Levi. And again, Levi's probably thinking, this is, I'm just going to hear it again. Uh, he doesn't like my life choices. I get that. So he's probably putting up his defenses. But shockingly, Jesus doesn't ridicule him. Instead, he says, follow me. Two words that are packed with a ton of meaning. Follow me. And in and, and that call... Jesus is not just saying, hey, come and let's hang out. 
come and be my, my friend. Je- Jesus is not saying that. And we know that for two reasons. One is the way that Jesus uses that phrase, follow me, in other places in Scripture. In fact, the very next time that Luke records Jesus talking about this idea of following him is in Luke, 9, uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's a far cry from Jesus telling them, hey, look, all you need to do is just accept me into your heart. Okay, you don't see Jesus saying something like that, does he? Now, the second reason we know that Jesus is not simply calling Levi to to come hang out and be his friend is the way that Levi responds to this call. How does Levi respond? First, he leaves everything. Immediately, he stands up and he leaves everything. The other gospel writers, they don't include that little detail. But Luke here, he's trying to emphasize what it means to actually follow Jesus. Levi, he leaves his cushy job. He leaves his comfort. Why? To become homeless and walk with Jesus. And it wasn't to improve his social status. The disciples of Jesus, they had a lot of enemies too, and they didn't have the Roman Empire backing them up, and so they were persecuted. In fact, Levi would eventually become a martyr, not because he was a tax collector, but because he chose to follow Jesus. Levi recognized what many Christians today do not recognize. He recognized that becoming a Christian means that your whole life changes. He understood that becoming a Christian is not simply believing in Jesus. The demons believe. The demons understand more theology than anybody in this room. Becoming a Christian also is not just accepting Jesus into your heart. What does that even mean? It's not just saying a prayer like it's magic. It's not just simply getting baptized. Don't get me wrong. Prayer and baptism are extremely important, but to become a Christian means your whole life changes. The Bible describes it as you are being reborn, your new creation. When God calls you to himself, the Spirit changes you from the inside out, and it starts with an inward change of the heart. Your desires change. Your passions change. Your mind is transformed. What you think about changes. Your motives, what motivates you, changes. What you delight in, changes. What you trust in, changes. Becoming a Christian is not simply making a decision. Let me say that again. Becoming a Christian is not simply you making a decision for Christ. It's a miracle from God that awakens a spiritual, your spirit inside of you, your your spiritual affections wake up. And that starts on the inside. Spiritual, you go from death to life, the Bible says. There's a whole new nature that you receive. So your inside changes, and as a result, there is always an outward change that accompanies it. And that may mean for you, it means different things for different people. It may mean for you, like it did for Levi, your occupation changes. 
What you do as a job changes. Maybe it means for you that your, your finances change because your priorities have been flipped upside down. And who you're living for is not, no longer yourself but Christ. It may mean for you your living arrangements change because you're seeking to be obedient to Christ. Guaranteed your schedule is going to change. Your, your language may change. What you fill your mind with, what you watch on TV, what you watch on YouTube will change. Often the whole trajectory of your life changes. And if you don't see outward change in your life, if your life looks the same as it did before you said you were a Christian, you need to ask whether or not you really did experience conversion. Because if you don't see an outward change, it may mean, it may be a sign that there was no inward change. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand most of us are not going to have a change like in an instant like Levi did. Sanctification happens over time. There's a process to it. And sometimes that process, we wish it could go a lot faster than it does. But there should be a progression, a change that you're seeing in your life, both inwardly and outwardly. So Levi, he leaves everything. And what does he do then? He throws a party. Okay, he throws a party. He invites all of his friends. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and other reclining at the table with them. I love this. I mean, Levi gets it. He has no regret about leaving everything. In fact, he throws a goodbye party to all of his friends. He invites them. And if we understand what happens to us when we become a Christian, the miracle that happens to us, there is no greater excuse to throw a party, to celebrate. J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop in the 1800s, he was right. This is what he said. I love this quote. He says, talking about conversion, he says, it is a far more important event than being married or becoming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. Conversion is a great, there's no better excuse to to throw a party, to celebrate. That should be part of our culture as believers. And it's a great reason to invite our unbelieving friends. That's what Levi does here. He throws this party. He invites all of his friends knowing that maybe there was a chance they would talk to Jesus and they would follow Jesus also. Now next we see that the Pharisees and the scribes, they did not share Levi's joy. Look back at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled and disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think it's interesting that the, the Pharisees grumbled not at Jesus, but at his disciples. Maybe, maybe the crowd was so big and they couldn't even get to Jesus. Maybe, maybe it was that they were really trying to target his disciples and, and try to convince them to, to pull away from Jesus. Look, you're following this big sinner. Maybe they were trying to convince him. I don't know. But Jesus, of course, is not a sinner. He, in fact, he models for us what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. He was with the sinners, but he looked nothing like the sinners here. 
Luke is also revealing something very significant about the character of these Pharisees and the scribes in this verse. These men, they, they, they looked at Jesus and they were appalled because Jesus associated with sinners and tax collectors. In their eyes, Jesus had defiled himself because he was consorting with them. And the question that they asked, it was not an inquisitive question. It was condemning. They, they were not looking for new information. They were looking to ridicule him. And so the Pharisees, they were legalists to the hilt. Uh, what do I mean by that? They, they loved the law, but they really didn't even understand the law. They, they loved to follow rules. They, they even made up rules on top of the rules. They made up extra rules so that would prevent them from breaking the real rules. They, they, they made Sheldon Cooper look like Bart Simpson, okay? Two of you got that. All right, for them, rule following was what made them acceptable to God. They believed, listen to this, they believed that they could manipulate God's love for them by being obedient. Let me say that again. They believed that they could manipulate God's love for them by being obedient. That's what legalism is. And so they looked down then on anybody who didn't follow the rules. In fact, in Matthew's own account of this story, uh, if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, he, and so Matthew would have been an, an eyewitness. He's, he's telling the story of his own conversion here. And he recalls something that Jesus said in this moment to the Pharisees that Luke did not pick up on. Jesus said to the Pharisees in this moment, he says, go and learn what this means. And Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Hosea, what he was doing, he was condemning Israel in that moment for its attention to ceremony without caring for others. You see, it's very possible for us to love the traditions of God's church. It's very possible for us to, to love God's word, and yet we miss God's heart by being merciful to sinners. You know, it matters very little if we've got mercy in the name of our church if we're not merciful. Recently, somebody, somebody told me, they, they came, they, were, they heard about the, the flood, and they came over to help on the building, and they said they had heard about Mercy Hill before, but that they, they thought that we were, they didn't even know we were a church because they thought Mercy Hill meant like a, a rehab place. And without hesitation, I said, yes, that's exactly what we are. <laughs> that's exactly, we are a bunch of sinners in need of healing. So I love it. Let's live out our name. The Pharisees, they, they lack, their lack of mercy served as really an opportunity for Jesus to teach them something very significant. And it's a, it's a significant truth that we need to hear today. Verse 31, Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying here, I did not come for those who think they have it all together. If you think you are righteous on your own, you can't be my follower. If you think you are God's child simply because you follow the rules or you were born into a certain family or you attend a building on Sunday mornings, you're not part of me. I haven't come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. To be a follower of Jesus 
You must first recognize that you're a sinner. Now, unfortunately, in today's church, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a sinner. In fact, many churches don't even use that terminology anymore. They don't, they don't like that term. It sounds like, because it comes across as very judgmental. Often we, when we think of sin, we, we try to minimize it. Uh, we, we look at ourselves and we say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I, I make mistakes. That's what it means to us. We just make mistakes. Or, or we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm not perfect. Because nobody's perfect. I mean, we're just human, right? But the problem is when we minimize sin like that, what it does is it causes us to be kind of like the Pharisees. If we minimize sin, what's going to happen? We're, we're not going to realize that we need Jesus. We're not going to realize that, that we're in need of salvation or we need forgiveness or we need to repent because we see ourselves as healthy and righteous. If we minimize sin also, this is what's going to happen. We're going to look down at others when we see their sin. We essentially turn in to these Pharisees. Now, in the Bible, we get really two pictures of what sin is. First, we get the picture of missing the mark. Maybe some of you heard this before. It's an archery term. If you miss the bullseye, you, uh, you, you sin. And you, Romans 3.23, Paul wrote, For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. And so... If the mark that we're supposed to hit in our life is the glory of God, you've got a better chance of picking up a stone and trying to throw it to the moon. None of us hit it. None of us come even close. But that's what we were designed for. Remember Genesis chapter 1. We were designed in the image of God. Why? To be able to reflect his glory. He commands, the, he commands Adam and Eve to, to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with my glory. Subdue it. Put order to it. You are to reflect my glory. And so it's really interesting because Satan comes in and he says, look, if you want to be like God, disobey God. And they bought that lie. If you want to be like God, disobey God. That's what Satan's lie to Adam and Eve was. In that moment, Ligon Duncan at the conference this past week, he said in that moment, Adam and Eve should have just laughed at them and said, look, we've already been made like God. We're in his image. And you think being disobedient is going to make us more like God? But they bought the lie. And while they didn't lose their image, they were still image bearers. Genesis 9 makes that very clear. But the image has been corrupted. It's kind of like a foggy mirror. That it, have you ever, guys? Have you ever tried to shave after the, you get out of the shower and the, the mirror's all foggy, and you try to shave? I mean, you can do it, kind of. You kind of try to wipe it off, and it's still it's still kind of messed up. But it, I mean, it's a pain, and you usually miss spots. You usually cut yourself. It doesn't work well. That's kind of like what's happened to our image, the the potential for us to to image God. I mean, it's still there, but it's just it's fuzzy. Sin has fogged. The image. It's fogged our minds. It's fogged our hearts and our ability to discern truth. That's what sin does. So sin is one, missing the mark of God's glory. But sin is also described in the Bible, and this is much less popular, as rebellion. Now we don't like to think of ourselves as rebels, and often we don't, we don't look at ourselves like, gosh, I'm, I'm against God. We don't, we don't think of ourselves 
that way. It's much easier to think of ourselves as mistakers. It's much easier for us to compare ourselves to other people who are, are way bigger sinners than us. I mean, we, we've never murdered. We've never done any of those big sins. But here Jesus is saying, unless you look at yourself like the tax collector, as a rebellious sinner, you have no part in the kingdom of God. And, and I know personally I get it. I, I understand. I don't want to be like those Pharisees. I look at those Pharisees and I think, gosh, these are, these are prideful men. These are, these are people that are just pompous, kind of jerks. But I also know if I'm honest, I have a real hard time identifying myself with that tax collector. I don't like to think of myself that way either. Instead, in my sin and my pride, I want to look at myself as good, as righteous, as, as successful, and I know this because, for example, when, when my wife criticizes me or, or gets frustrated with me, when I don't communicate that I love her in the way that I should, what happens in my heart? It, my heart says, how dare you think lowly of me? Just like a Pharisee would think. Another example, when I'm at conferences, like pastor conferences like this week and and I see guys that I haven't seen for a while, and they ask me about Mercy Hill. What do you think I share with them? How do you think I share? I, I share the positive stuff that's going on. I mean, we're about to get in a building. It's great. Very rarely will I share the personal struggles that I'm going through right now or the challenges that we're seeing as a church because even though I know that I'm not supposed to identify myself as a Pharisee, but I'm supposed to identify myself as like this tax collector, my natural inclination is to think like a Pharisee. And so is yours. Let me give you a, a list of symptoms of modern day Pharisees. Uh, and this is really coming from Matthew 23. But today, and maybe you relate to some of these Pharisees, one symptom is that they know what to say, but do not do what they say. They know all the answers, they've, they've read all the books, they pray beautiful prayers, but they don't, their life doesn't match up with it. Pharisees practice their faith to be seen by others. They want to be the upfront people. They, they, wanna, they want others to see how good they are. Pharisees lack love. For people in need. They look down on, on others saying, look, you put yourself in that position. I don't want anything to do with you. Pharisees cover up sin instead of confessing and repenting. And Pharisees tend to talk about people rather than talk to them. That's what we see in the story, don't we? They don't go directly to Jesus. They go to Jesus' disciples to talk about Jesus. Spurgeon once said this, he said, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, he said, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. Pretty bold statement, but I think it's true. We are born believing that we can earn and that we deserve heaven. We were born resisting the idea of grace because we don't think we need it. 
And grace implies that we're sinners, and we don't like to think of ourselves that way. And so do you see a, a disconnect between your head and your heart sometimes? I think if we're honest, all of us would say yes. Do, do you see a disconnect between what you say and what you do? But listen, the solution is not to go and read more. The Pharisees, they had read all the books. Their problem was not lack of knowledge. Don't get me wrong, knowledge is vital. But it is not the key to reviving our hearts. God is the key. God is the one who takes the knowledge that we have gained about God and he plants it into our hearts so that it produces fruit. The Apostle Paul prayed for this very thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So there's the knowledge part. Then you go on to verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the saints? <coughs> so having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's how we end the Phariseeism in our own hearts, in our own lives. We pray that God would enlighten the eyes of our heart. It's not by our own will. It's not by just trying harder. God's got to do a miracle in us. When the eyes of your heart are enlightened, this is what happens. You begin to see the significance of what Christ did on the cross for you. You recognize that he died the death that you deserved. These are not just words to you anymore. They, they impact every part of your life. It changes everything. You recognize that he took on the sin that you, he took on your sin and he gave, and in exchange, he gave you his righteousness. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. You see that your sin is rebellion against God and that it needs to be forgiven. You see the significance also of Christ rising from the dead and what that means for you, that one day if you are united with him, you also will be risen to, to new life, to eternal life. And through the eyes of our hearts being opened by God, we will experience the same humility as Levi did in our story. That's what leads us to repentance. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's, a, it's something we, we need to do throughout our whole life. And my, my prayer, my prayer for our church, my prayer for my, myself, is that, that, that we would be a church filled with tax collectors, at least like-minded. That we would be repentant sinners. That we would be like Levi, being willing to leave everything to follow Christ. And for some of you, maybe that means you moved to Scotland as a missionary. I, I pray that we would be like Levi and we would celebrate what Christ has done for us. That grace would truly be amazing. Every single day, we would be in awe, that our mind would be blown by what Christ has done for us. I pray that that would be part of our culture. I pray that, that we would be a church that wages war against the prideful Pharisee tendencies that we all have by, by pleading with God to to really enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would 
be like this tax collector, humble, relying fully on God's grace. I pray that we would be like Jesus in this story, that we would be willing to get our hands dirty and and go where the sinners are rather than waiting for them to come to us. And I pray that we'd be able to better relate to them, recognizing our own sinfulness. The evangelist D.T. Niles, he, he said this, Evangelism is, is really just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's my prayer for us, that we would see ourselves as beggars in need of the gospel. And when we go out into the community, we wouldn't think of ourselves as any better, but we would see ourselves as one who is, we're just, sharing, we're just sharing with them where the bread is. We're just sharing with them where they can find the feast. And we would invite them to come join us. Let's pray that God would move in our hearts to do that. Father, oh, how often we tend to look down on others. How often we don't see the grace that you have given us as amazing. How often we tend to think of ourselves as righteous and and good enough and that we often, like these Pharisees, try to manipulate your love by being obedient. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us. I pray that you would give us a heart to share the good news of the gospel. I pray for those who have come in here today burdened by their own sin, feeling like that text collector. I pray that this would be great news. This would be amazing news for them, knowing that this is exactly who you have called. If they repent of their sins, they would, they would be able to celebrate like Levi, knowing that for all of eternity, we get to spend our lives with you. Help us to celebrate that today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to move into a time.